Why don't you uh, join me in a word of prayer? I want to pray for specifically uh, our brother Ozzy. Um, Rosales' family had to leave. Ozzy apparently needed to go to the hospital. So let's pray for him. I don't have any details, but uh, it's just on my heart to pray for, for him. I know he's been battling similar issues as my wife with uh, heart palpitations and anxiety and stuff like that. So uh, let's lift him and <clears throat> Terry and the kids up. Let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you now and we know that we stand here, Lord, in your gaze and in your presence, Lord, and all things are open and naked and bare before you. And we want to pray for um, the, Ro- the, the Rosales family. Uh, I want to pray for our brother Ozzy. I want to lift up Terry. I want to lift up the kids to you, Lord, um, and give the doctors wisdom and uh, insight into his condition what they can do to help him. Lord, we pray for full recovery and I pray that you would fully restore him now and touch him in this very hour. We pray for him, Father. And Lord, we also want to pray for our time in your holy word. What a wonderful thing it is to be reminded as we are, as such, Lord, pilgrims along the way. Lord, that we are, as Peter says, aliens in a strange land. That we are sojourners and we are just passing through a strange land. And Father, we need reminding continually. We need to be constantly stimulated to love and good works, and we need to be perpetually reminded of the things that are uh, for our peace and for our success. And so, Lord, we pray with this word, help us to endure. Help us to endure well. Lord, help us to take advantage of your promises. Help us to take advantage of the promise of rest. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, just like any opportunity, uh, if you've ever missed out on an opportunity, you know how sad you feel when an opportunity has come and gone and you have missed out. Uh, I can't think of a more significant biblical example of opportunity lost than the story of the rich young ruler. You remember that story? Matthew 19, a young man approaches Jesus who has much wealth and many possessions. And Jesus gives him the golden opportunity of discipleship, tells him, sell everything that you have and come and follow me. Then the text says, the man went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. And the effect of that passage is that as the reader, there is a deeper sorrow. There is a greater grief than the grief that that man felt. And the grief is, is that that man walked away from the promises of God and that that man lost the greatest opportunity for the greatest reward imaginable. That is, in essence, what is going on here in the book of Hebrews. We sang the song today about being purified and cleansed and that the blood of Christ and the grace of Christ is powerful enough to cleanse our sins. And that is exactly the truth that the audience of Hebrews stands to either gain or lose, to either believe and persevere and persist and endure in that gospel truth or lose sight of that truth by unbelief. Therefore, I want to remind you of a passage out of Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10.35 says, Therefore, 
Do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. I want to just encourage us today in our Christian walk. I want to remind us, I want to encourage us, I want to, I want to give us a shot of vitality to encourage us as I prayed along the way, along the path of this pilgrimage to remind you that what, why, it, why it is so important for us to be reminded of our confidence, of our conviction, of our confession, and to hold fast our assurance firm until the end is because it has great reward. And that doesn't really do it justice. Think of what's at stake, brothers and sisters, in one human life. In one human life, a person stands to either gain joy, pleasure, unspeakable, bliss for all eternity, infinite, uh, infinite pleasure. I don't think we can even imagine in our minds something greater than an infinite God giving us infinite pleasure for all infinity. Or there stands to uh, result in the life of one individual either infinite pleasure or infinite ruin, infinite pain. And that's why the warning of Hebrews is so dire. And that's why we need to look at the promises of God with sobriety. And that's why Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4 here, following up on everything that he's talked about, when we looked at the generation in the wilderness and their failure, and how they provoked God, and how they hardened their hearts. And as the author of the Psalm, uh, Psalms in Psalm 95 says, they always go astray in their heart. And so now the author of Hebrews is saying, don't follow in their example. Therefore, let us fear. What is the proper response to this prospect of infinite pleasure and infinite joy in the sight of an infinite God. The proper response is fear. And there are several proper responses to the promises of God. But let me begin with that issue right there, fear. How many times have you talked to uh, someone that you're trying to share the good news of Jesus with and you tell them that one of the reasons why you follow God and you came to the Lord and you came to Christ is because you had a fear of the consequences of your sin. You had a fear of judgment. And they tell you, well, I don't want to do anything out of fear, right? But biblical fear is different than other forms of fear. Let me remind you with the Bible, the, a good biblical theology of fear. The Bible says the fear of God is pure, in other words, we are not fearing some malicious monster in the sky. What we fear is the holiness of God, the purity of God, the absolute moral excellence of God. And on the basis of that moral excellence, we fear that we will be consumed in His presence because we are so much not morally excellent and pure and righteous and holy. And we are also told that Fear, biblical fear, gospel fear, instructs. Proverbs 1, 7, you know this verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A person is not in their right mind if they are not motivated by gospel fear. If you do not fear God, that means that you disregard 
the holiness of God. You disregard the judgment of God. You disregard the judgments of God. That's why Proverbs, a lot of this comes out of Proverbs. Proverbs says that the fear of God imparts life. I like that. The fear of the Lord gives life. Amos chapter 5 verse 6 says, fear God and live. Fear God and live. This is why the proverb says, when you take fear and you couple it together with humility, the result is riches and honor and life. I think the best advice coming out of Proverbs 23 says that we ought to fear the Lord at all times. In every season and in every way, we should fear God. Now, here in the context of Hebrews, the author calls us to fear, again, in light of the promises of God, fear having an evil heart of unbelief that falls away from the living God. In other words, to make it short, fear the threat of apostasy. Go back to chapter uh, 3, verse 12. He says it in this way, take care. It's kind of synonymous here to what we're seeing in verse 1 in chapter 4. Fear, lest while a promise remains of entering in, any of you may fall short of it. Verse 12, take care, right, brethren, that there be not in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That is the greatest spiritual catastrophe that can take place in a person's life. Apostasy. A disregard for God, His Word, His promises, His salvation. And ultimately, as we've looked, what the book of Hebrews is telling us is that everything has come to a head in God's history of salvation. Everything has come to a climax, to a culmination. Everything has come to a head in Jesus Christ. God spoke long ago in many ways, in many portions, to the fathers, through the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken, past tense, in a, a settled, matter-of-fact uh, way, in His Son, Jesus. Wonderful. Jesus has brought the final word. Jesus has brought the final revelation. Jesus is Himself the Word of God incarnate, Right? We received the law through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of all things. He is the end of the law for all those that believe. But if we don't believe that, if we believe that there is some other redemptive event that needs to transpire, well, just like the book of Hebrews, you will go searching out for something other than Christ when Christ is all you need. The message of Hebrews in one sense is very simple. I know that Hebrews is uh, known to be one of the hardest books of the Bible to either study or preach or teach. Uh, it, has the, it has the hardest, it's got, it's got the most difficult Greek in all the New Testament. But in one sense, the book of Hebrews is so simple. Believe in Jesus because everything that he did is sufficient. Believe in Jesus because in Jesus we have the answer to all of life's questions, all of the Old Testament questions. Job says, if a man dies, can he live again? The book of Hebrews says, it is on the basis of an indestructible life that we will live. Because Jesus lives, we will live. All of these shadows and types that you know about so well that I've preached so often about, 
find their ultimate yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so, how should we not fear? This is what it means in Philippians 2, uh, verses 12 and 13, to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not just in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. For it is it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And this is really what's at the very heart of this passage. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering His rest, any one of you may come short of it. Now, this verse, chapter 4, verse 1, we could say, gives us the, the what, the who, and the how of God's rest. The what, the who, and the how. The what. The what of God's rest deals with the eschatological presence of God's rest. Again, this means that in the new covenant, that we are living in the last days where God's promises have been fulfilled redemptively in Christ. He has accomplished all that we need. He has opened up a new and living way to us through His flesh. That's in chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 20. The who, uh, the who of God's rest speaks to the distributive nature of this fear. In other words, look at the text. It says that we are to fear lest any of you, or uh, uh, that it says here, lest any of you, yeah, see, all the way back at the beginning of the verse, he says, let us fear while a promise remains of entering this rest, uh, lest any of you may seem to fall short of it. So any of you means every single one of you. Every last one of you needs to fear. So every one of us has a personal responsibility to maintain the fear of God. And what about the how? What about the how? The how deals with how it is precisely that you will forfeit the promises of God. In short, he says here that you will fall short of it. Again, through unbelief, with an evil, unbelieving heart that does not obey the gospel. It is the person for whom nothing is enough. You remember the wilderness generation? No matter how many things God did, He gave them manna, He gave them water, He gave them a sign, He gave them covering during the day, He gave them light at night. And no matter what God did, that generation continued to grumble, they continued to complain, and they continued to undermine God's promises and His provision. In the same way, if we grumble and complain at what God has provided in Jesus Christ, we will fall short of God's rest. God's rest. But uh, not only do the promises of God lead us to fear lest we fall short of it, therefore it's also a call to fight. I want to talk about fighting in the faith. You know, faith is a fight. And so many people fail at this point. They think that Christianity is going to be a walk in the park. Have you ever thought about your Christian life that way? Oh, I know we might know it theologically, but sometimes it takes a certain circumstance to really jolt you into reality, to re recognize that this life is exactly what the Bible says it will be. It will be difficult. It will be hard. Jesus said in this life, you will have trials, you will have tribulation. That is a gospel promise that you probably won't find in your Bible promise book. But it's there because it's there for our good. It is there for our good. Fight 
uh, faith is a fight. Faith is not easy. It is often complex, difficult. Sin complicates everything. It makes it difficult for us to persevere, and, and sometimes persevering can be downright arduous, hard. Faith is hard work. Christianity is not a call to become spiritual and then put it into neutral. We can't be passive the way that we engage the Christian life. We must be engaged. We must be proactive. We have to be willing to, as the Bible says, work out our salvation in fear and in tre- and trembling. Now, many people have learned the lessons of faith's fights, but no one has come out of faith unscathed. I'm reminded of the biography of Charles Simeon. I was thinking of Charles Simeon, his fight of faith, his endurance. If you don't know, Charles Simeon was a pastor in Cambridge, England, uh, back around the turn of the 19th century. So you're going back. He was born in 1759. He died in 1836. And he was the pastor of Trinity Church in Cambridge. Well, Charles Simeon is very famous for his perseverance, for his endurance. Um, He was a pastor there for 54 years. And you might say, well, that is an incredible, remarkable accomplishment. But it is not the duration of his ministry that is so impressive. It was the nature of his ministry If you've read anything on Charles Simeon, you will know that Charles Simeon was given a very difficult pastorate. I am so thankful when I look at Charles Simeon's lot of ministry. Charles Simeon was opposed by his church from the very outset. Imagine pastoring a church where the people don't like you, where the people are opposed to you, where the people don't respect you, and where the people make it known that they don't like you and they don't respect you. Well, there are, some, there are some really, really amazing stories in the life of Charles Simeon. At some point, Charles Simeon was even blocked from preaching the Sunday evening service. He had to come up with a later evening service to get around the preaching committee so that he could preach his own service in his own church. And even then, some members would show up at the front of the church, lock the doors to the church so no one can get in to listen to him. These are the kinds of things he had to deal with. Obviously, these old historical churches, most of them have pews. They don't have soft little, you know, individual chairs like this. They had big wooden pews, and those pews had little iron gates at the edge of the pews. Kind of cool, right? I wish I had my own iron gate at my pew sometimes. Anyway, but maybe not after this example, because one of the things they would do is they would lock the gate so that in those services, people couldn't use their pews. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that he had to deal with time and time again, and every single time, Charles Simeon endured. And why did he endure? He endured because he believed that God had made a great promise to him. He prayed, uh, this is by uh, H.C.G. Mule, one of the biographies of Simeon. He prayed one time, walking by Trinity Church. He said, oh, how I rejoice if God were to give me that church. He prayed in his heart, oh, that I might preach the gospel there and that I might be a herald for him in the university because it was uh, right there at Cambridge. But God answered that prayer. He answered Simeon's prayer and his entire ministry for 54 years. He never lost sight of the promise that God would be with him and that God would be all that he needs. And the same thing for us. 
we can't lose sight of the promises of God. No matter how difficult our circumstances, think of Simeon's uh, circumstances. It wasn't because his circumstances were easy that he held on to the promise, that he endured for 54 years. The same thing for us. It is not because our circumstances are going to change that all of a sudden the promises of God are becoming more appealing to us. Regardless of how our lives change, brothers and sisters, oh, and change they will. Change they will. When I'm out preaching the gospel and sharing Christ with people, I, I often tell them and I remind them, um, doesn't it bother you, I, I ask folks, doesn't it bother you that one day everything that you hold dear, everything that you love, your family, your friends, your possessions, everything will be taken away, with, uh, taken away from you at death? Everything. But to turn that on yourself and to ask yourself that question, one day life is going to take a turn that you didn't expect. One day life, and I always, I'm always reminded at this when I'm doing funerals, when I look in the eyes of people, I love preaching funerals because people are so aware of eternity. And I look in the eyes of these folks, and some of them are just jolted. They're just shocked. They're just, they can't believe that, this, that their loved one has passed, passed away. Whether it's death, whether it's a phone call from a doctor, whether it's a turn of events at the office, all of a sudden something happened in the company, and you're looking for a new job. Whatever it is, God has a way of jolting us so that we are confronted with a choice. Are we going to cling to the promises of God? Or are we going to allow our circumstances to overwhelm us? And that is certainly not what we want to do. In our faith, we are called repeatedly in Scripture to engage it like a fight, like a war. Let me give you one example. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. This is another pastor, Timothy, and here Paul is giving Timothy advice. He says, but you be sober in all things. When I think of that, I think that really doesn't describe evangelicalism by and large today. Evangelicalism today is so lost as six flags over Jesus. I went to one church here in the area, I won't say what it is. They had an entire arcade in the church. I mean, I'm talking like Dave and Buster's arcade. In the church. Isn't that a famous, did I just mess that up? I don't know anything about Dave and Buster's. It just sounds like it fits with the arcade, right? Don't they have arcades there? They have a full arcade there in the church. Does that promote sobriety? I don't know. I couldn't be sober if I got into one of those, you know, arcade boxes and, you know. And yet we're training systematically the evangelical church to be anything other but sober. And here, Paul tells Timothy, be sober, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And uh, again, in terms of a pastorate, this sounds completely diametrically opposed to what, what ministers are hearing nowadays in seminary. When they're being trained for the pastorate, it's all about, really, marketing. It's all about consumer-driven mentalities and how to grow the church, and how to get the most pews filled and the most tithes brought in. But Paul had a completely different view of the ministry, one that required great endurance, great perseverance, a fight. And look at he turns it on himself. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. 
and I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. This is how we're going to keep the faith, is if we fight for our faith. This is how we are not going to fall short of it. This is how we are going to resist coming short of the rest of God, is if we strive. And I know that in this In this aspect, it almost seems as if this part of the tension, I'm saying that it depends on you whether or not you're going to heaven. Well, obviously, we know too much about the Bible to to conclude there. Just as Paul says in Philippians, work out your salvation in fear of trembling, he reminds us it is God who is working in you both to will and to do. And so perseverance always has a means to the end. And God uses the means of our personal effort, our personal, our personal zeal, our personal ardor to persevere us to the end. We have to fight. We have to run. Paul says, I finished my race. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. In other words, there is a reward. So we have to continually set our sight on the reward. Now, let me back up a little bit here and talk about one of the central aspects of this text, and that is, or this whole chapter, that is the word rest. You see that? The concept of rest, and I would, enc- I would encourage you to, if you can, pick up a Bible encyclopedia. Pick up an encyclopedia of the imagery of the Bible, something like that, and look up the, do- look up the, the concept of rest, and just do a whole theology of rest. That's what I've done, because rest is very important. The subject of rest, the topic of rest, this is important theology now. As I see it in the Bible, has three major movements, we can say. Number one, it is theological. Number two, it is theonomic. And number three, it is typological. In other words, it has to do with typology. It is theological, it is theonomic, and it is typological. Let me uh, begin by talking about the theology of it. By theological, I mean theology proper. I mean it has to do first and foremost with God Himself. In Genesis 2, verse 3, it said, God completed His work, which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day. That is the first time the concept of rest is introduced in Scripture, and it has to do with God Himself resting. From there, we move to the theonomic aspect of rest because the Sabbath, the seventh day there in Genesis 2, is never prescribed for anybody prior to the theonomy of Israel. Prior to that, you have the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the patriarchs, and none of them, you won't find in any of those portions of Scripture, a prescription to keep the Sabbath. But you find it When Israel comes to Sinai, of course, in the Ten Commandments, and it is given to them as a perpetual memorial and a sign that they have, in fact, entered into covenant with God and that God delivered them out of the bondage of Egypt. Let me read to you Exodus 31, verse 16. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath, to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. So the 
The, the, the Sabbath day in Genesis 2 becomes sort of the principle for the Sabbath day in Genesis 31 with the Decalogue. Israel also understood Sabbath rest in another very important way that is relevant to, uh, uh, to Hebrews chapter 4, and that is that rest was also uh, connected to the conquest of Canaan. And so Joshua was to lead the people into rest in Canaan. There, they would find rest from their enemies. They would find rest uh, for their souls. They would, to use the Edwards, uh, to use the language of Edwards, they would have safety and security and fullness and sweet refreshment in 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 Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. We know all of that. The only requirement for entering the land was faith in God's word. Faith in the promise that God made to the fathers. We looked at this last week, especially to Abraham. That's why in Deuteronomy chapter 1, you have, when they're talking about the land, the conquest of Canaan, a reminder of the promises that God made to Abraham, going all the way back. When Joshua gives a redemptive historical summary at the end of the book, beginning in Joshua 24, verse 1, Again, he reiterates the promises that God made to the fathers. But that brings me to the third point. Not only is it theological, theonomic, dealing with the nation of Israel, but it is ultimately and most significant for us, typological. It is typological in that the Bible uses the concept of rest as a typology for a future, more significant spiritual rest a rest that has to do with our eternal eschatological salvation. And that rest is entered as the promised land is itself like a type of heaven. It's like a type of heaven. And so when the author of Hebrews is saying here, there remains a rest to be entered, there's a promise remaining of entering his rest. He is not talking about Sabbath observance. He is not talking about Going back to the theocracy of Israel. Oh, no, no. He's not even talking about going back to the land of Canaan. We know that because if you look at uh, verse 8 here of chapter 4, it says, If Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. You see that? So Joshua, Canaan, the promised land, opens up the possibility of greater rest for us one day. And this is, in, this is intrinsic to the teaching of Hebrews. Turn with me to Hebrews 11. So I want to show you there that even in Abraham's own journey of faith, the author of Hebrews recounts how even in the mind, in the theology, we could say, of Abraham, he was already looking towards a typological rest. Beginning in verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed, going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. That's talking about Canaan. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the promised land, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. There's so much theology here, I have to very, very much resist the temptation to go into all of it, but look at verse 10, is crucial. For he was looking for the city 
which has foundation and whose builder or whose architect and builder is God. That's the King James trying to kick in right there. But the NASB is right, which has foundations, whose architect and builder was God. He was looking for a future city, a higher country, to use the language that we've already seen in chapter 3, a heavenly calling, synonymous. So in other words, when Hebrews talks about rest, it's ultimately talking about rest in a spiritual sense now, rest in a salvific sense. And for that reason, the most important component of all brothers and sisters, is faith. It's not bravery. It's not courage. It's not that you need to go spy out the land. It's that you must believe that there is a land, you know, out yonder. You must believe that the promises of God, that on that day, that you will inherit the land, that you will hear, that you will hear, you will see Jesus saying to you, enter in my good and faithful servant, into the joy of the Lord. This is what we're believing in now. And God has met all the conditions of this. So not only do we need to fear in light of God's promises, not only do we need to fight the fight of faith in light of the promises of God, but ultimately the promises of God lead us to faith itself. Let's read uh, verse 2 together. It says here, back here in Hebrews, two, Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 2, For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Very interesting text. All of that to say that the crucial component here is faith in the promise. Now, we could say that what this is setting out for us is the condition and the necessity of faith. What is the condition of faith? The singular condition of faith is the Word of God. It is the Word of God that must first be there so that faith can be united to it. In other words, you cannot come to know Christ without the Word. You cannot come to know Christ without the Gospel. Um, There are some evangelicals that would go so far as to believe that a person can be saved apart from hearing the gospel. Have any of you all heard that? I have. I have heard folks say that as long as a person responds to the measure of light that has been given to them, God will respond to that act of faith, and He will give them the righteousness of Jesus Christ, even if they've never heard of Jesus Christ. I have heard very popular, very well-known, very reputable Uh, uh, apologists and other people say those very words, that a person can actually be saved apart from a knowledge of Jesus Christ. And if that is true, we encounter all sorts of problems. Number one, you are at odds with the Bible. Romans chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, as there Paul is talking about Israel's failure to believe in the message that came with the prophets They did not all heed the good news. As Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The condition of faith is the word. 
That is what faith needs for it to be complete. On top of that, if people did not need the word, if they did not need the gospel in order to be saved, then missions is actually an enterprise where we jeopardize people's chances of coming to God. Because once we impart the knowledge of the gospel, then they are accountable to what they've heard. According to that logic, it would be better to leave people in a state where they are in isolation from the Word of God, that perhaps they might believe in the creation, they might see the creation, respond to the creation, and the Creator could save them apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, no, that is absolutely the opposite of what the Bible teaches. God has ordained all of our times and places of habitation. God reveals His statute, uh, uh, Psalm 47. If you look at Psalm 47, verse 20, the psalmist uh, makes it very explicit there. He says he reveals his statutes to Israel, and he has not dealt that way with any other people. Praise the Lord. So the people of God in the Bible have no concept whatsoever of a person coming to faith in God without Jesus Christ and coming to salvation. No, it is absolutely important. I remember uh, preaching a uh, conference uh, not too long ago here, oh, I think it was last year, year before, where I was talking about evangelism, and I was speaking to a, a crowd of evangelistic people, uh, and many of them are very familiar with the use of the law in evangelism. And I have heard over and over again by certain people over the years that sometimes I just leave people with the law because I don't see humility or I don't see conviction. And so what they need is the law. They don't need the gospel. We didn't get that far. And I made a point, and I was shouting at the top of my lungs, preach Christ. Preach the gospel always and at all times. Never, ever, ever fail to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your duty is not to preach the law. Your duty is to preach the gospel. The law is just a handmaiden of the gospel. It is just useful to propagate the gospel. Our duty is not to leave people with the Ten Commandments and leave them condemned and say, oh, until I see humility, I am not going to give you the other aspect of this equation here. I'm not going to give you the good news until you recognize the bad news. No, folks, we are never to leave people without Christ. I mean, second of, of 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, the Apostle Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He earlier said, I wasn't even sent to baptize people, chapter 1, verse 17, but to preach Christ. See, the Word of God, the Word of Christ, as it says there in Romans 10, is absolutely necessary in order for faith to give birth to salvation. It's absolutely necessary. It is through faith in Jesus Christ that God justifies the sinner. It is through faith in Jesus Christ that God is going to justify the ungodly, Romans 3, 28. Through faith, He's going to reconcile us to God. Galatians chapter 2, verses 16 through 17 makes it crystal clear that it's on the basis of a person's faith in Jesus Christ that he is able to stand in a right relationship with God. This is the good news. The good news is that God has provided a way, a new and living way, to use the language of Hebrews, in Jesus Christ. So, as evangelists, our lips have to be drenched with Jesus. 
Our lips have to be drenched with Christ, what he did, what he did on the cross. The cross is the only remedy. That's it. There is no other remedy. It is not enough to leave people condemned under the weight of God's law. We must show them that the cross is the remedy out. Now, certainly, certainly, this leaves us with a frightening warning here in the book of Hebrews that if we neglect the promises of God, though we've heard the good news, notice it says there, we, we have heard good news preached to us, right? Go back to chapter 2 of this book, beginning in verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Well, so when Hebrews says we have had good news... It's the same thing as chapter 2 saying, the things that we have heard. Do you know that the word gospel, euangelion, is not found in the book of Hebrews? The word gospel does not appear in the book of Hebrews anywhere. But there are many gospel equivalents that point us in the same direction, that point us to the necessity of Christ is our atonement, Christ is our mediator, Christ is our prophet, priest, and king. That is what the, the book of Hebrews does. It is, it is without mentioning the word gospel, it is a marvelous exposition of the gospel. <laughs> that is what's so wonderful. So we've looked at, this is what it looks like for people to forfeit the promises of God. If they don't mingle the word with faith, then the promises of God slip out of their hands. So what does it look like to obtain the promise of God. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 for a sharp contrast to how a person retains the promises of, of God, how a person unites faith and word together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13. What a marvelous, marvelous verse. <clears throat> Paul says, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, that's kind of the same as Hebrews, they heard good news, right? You receive the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. There are three aspects of saving faith, brothers and sisters, and this is important for your theology. Understand that saving faith turns on three pivotal points. A person must understand the facts of the gospel. They must have a, they must have a mental assent to the gospel. They must agree with it, but then ultimately they have to trust in the gospel. It's what the reformers used to call notitia, referring to the mind, a census referring to conviction and agreement, and then fiducia, which is the Latin word for trust, right? And you cannot have one without the other. You can't have trust without knowledge. That's fideism. That means that you're trusting in something you don't even understand. You cannot have assent, agreement, and not have trust. Because how many people have you met in your life that say, oh, I believe in that, but they, do, they don't live like it. That means they don't have trust, right? They have not 
relied upon the gospel. They have not given themselves to the gospel. Oh, they know of the gospel. They even agree with the gospel, but they do not commit to the gospel. No, this is what faith is all about. This is what true saving faith is all about. Now, we should conclude here with a very practical point I think that Hebrews is making, and that is, is that the audience of Hebrews had the word. The audience of Hebrews were exposed to the truth, and yet there remains the potential for disaster. I find that to be amazingly practical because how many people have the word? Oh, I mean, my goodness, we have the word today in ways that are almost almost boggle the mind. Um, in my phone, I have 4,000 books in my Logos software that I can just open my phone and have access to endless commentaries and lexicons and books of the Bible. We have endless resources all around us. You can go down to the local bookstore here. You go to Mardell's or Lifeway or or, or, or one of those books, or, and you could just find any book in the world. Well, maybe not any book, especially not good books. Sometimes those bookstores are not even worth going into, to tell you the truth. There's so much junk in that book, bookstore. Sorry, I had to throw that in there. I was in Lifeway once, and they had a big, giant exhibition for Jesus Calling. Have you heard this book? Oh. This is a woman who claims to have received direct revelation from God, and God speaks to her directly and audibly, and she writes down the things that Jesus says. And I couldn't believe how many ladies were just hovering around this table and reading the book and interested in putting it under their hand, going to the register. And I just, everything within me, I, I probably was a coward. I should have said something. But every, there's just junk in there. But... I've bought a lot of stuff at Lifeway over the years. I've bought lots of stuff at Mardell's. I've bought lots of stuff at Christian bookstores. We are surrounded with endless resources. We have the Word of God all around us. You can come to church. You can sit with God's people. You can be members of a church. You can go through the membership process. You can lie your way all the way to Judgment Day. But if you do not believe in the promises of God, you will forfeit eternal rest. And so, time for hard introspection. It is time, as the Bible says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Or is this Christian thing, you're doing this whole Christian thing because your spouse does it, or because mommy and daddy do it, and therefore you want to just go along with the program? Why do you do it? It's always good, parents, to test your children, right? As hard as that is, there's so much difficulty with that because you don't want to raise a little Pharisee that just says whatever mommy and daddy wants him to say so that he can go back to you know, doing, playing and, and, and doing the things he or she wants to do. But to really test, to really examine, to really prod is their faith. Why do you do it? Why do you want to obey God? And the same for us. What interest do we really have in the church of God? It always strikes me funny how people want to hang around the church and have no interest in Christ. Maybe that's because much of the church today has become a, a dating service. It has become a networking service. It has become a good moral club to be around people. But as someone somewhere said, you should preach in such a way where the elect will come and the non-elect will leave. And that's not harsh. That's just Bible. 
2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, the Apostle Paul said, look, we are the aroma of either life or death. To those that are being saved, we are the aroma of life. And to those who are perishing, we will be the aroma of death. And we can't ever compromise our message and the things that we have heard to accommodate the audience. That is how we're going to maintain an evangelical soul for our existence as a church. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, I pray that above everything, Lord, we would orient our lives around the gospel. Help us to prioritize. The most important things in life will be determined by that which fills our priority list and where we spend our time and where we spend our money and where we spend our interest and what our personal ambitions are all about. And so, Lord, help us to, to orbit ourselves around this, the galaxy of your word, to put ourselves in proper orbit around the centrality of Christ in all things. And, Father, convict us and show us and remind us, exhort us, even through one another, as it says in Hebrews, to stimulate one another, to encourage one another while it's still called the day. Lord, we don't want to, any one of us here, we don't want to go off balance. We don't want to stray at the back of the pack. We don't want to stray from the flock. We don't want to be an easy target for the enemy. We want to stay close to you, our shepherd. And we want to stay close to the sheepfold so that we will be in that number. Lord, I just pray for anyone here today that knows in their heart of hearts they are not in the sheepfold. They are not, and God, as a gentleman came up to me once and told me, I am not in the new covenant. God, would you open the heart? Would you turn the mind? Turn them, show them the futility of their way and cause them to put all faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your promises. Help us to cling to them at all cost. In Jesus' name, amen.